hyper-powerful institutions like the Amazon Catholic Church or what have you to build up as rivals that, that looks out for its own interests instead of for the, you know, at least the centralized state has, has the goal of looking out for the interests of all the people, uh, then things start to fall apart. To understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Hello, Rob. How are you? Not bad, not bad. How are things going, Rory? Yeah, things are going all right. Nothing uh, out of the ordinary. How have you been getting on? Um, you know, the things are things are going well. I finally saw Oppenheimer, which was, uh, yeah, enjoyed enjoyed the heck out of it. It was. Uh, did you think there'd be so many Senate hearings? I, I did not, but I think it was an interesting. It was an interesting structure, you know. It was, and I, I looked into it, and it turns out that straws. Um, really did. Uh, it wasn't just the Oppenheimer thing, but but that's a thing that actually happened. It was supposed to be confirmed, and he wasn't, uh, in part because the country's scientists were so angry at him for what had been done to Oppenheimer. Um, I was stunned to see that. I mean, just Oppenheimer died fairly young. You know, I think in, in his role in creating the nuclear bomb and then his subsequent political fall from grace. Yeah, you know, I think it probably destroyed yeah. him in some ways. That the film sort of made it out as if he was quite blasé with the whole thing, but I get the feeling that it did weigh on him. Yeah. Uh, well, he was a massive smoker, and I think he died of a form of uh, throat cancer, which is always a great reminder for a heavy tobacco abuser like myself. So it's, uh, uh, are, you, are you still smoking, or I thought you'd given up for some reason? Oh, I gave up smoking cigarettes. Um, when I turned 29, I gave up uh, dipping tobacco. When I turned 39... Uh, and uh, I still smoke cigars a little too often, but usually that's uh, only in the summer months. So, yeah. are you aware of any empires that made a lot of money through tobacco? <laughs> I am, in fact. Uh, today we're going to continue our cutting edge uh, discussion of uh, current events by talking about the Tudors. Uh, last time we talked about Henry VIII. I'd like to talk about the Tudors more generally. Uh, and we find Eliz out that there's actually five of them and not three. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Elizabeth I, of course, being the standout. Gloriana, the the, the Virgin Queen. Well, it's um, also uh, Henry VIII is also quite, um, I'd say he's the default king for a lot of people. For sure, for sure. He's, he's, he's who people think of. That extraordinary uh, work piece. by uh, Hans Hans Holbein, I think, is is the name of the uh, the uh, is it Dutch or Flemish or I don't know the, the Low Countries, the uh, the the uh, uh, painter Hans Holbein that gave us that uh, that incredible image of uh, the rotund Henry VIII uh, staring at us at us with his bejeweled codpiece, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but yeah, so the Tudor is tremendously important. I think I made the case that. Uh, the disruption that Henry VIII caused uh, was tremendously important uh, for uh, Britain's uh, rise to control, really creation of and control of the modern world in the 19th century. And I want to tease that out a little bit more, talking about this dovetails with a video I made recently called, uh, that sh should really be out by now, called uh, Western Civilization is Just Big Government. Uh, talking about how centralization of governments is just as, if not more important, than all the free trade capitalism stuff that we uh, have been uh, sort of genuflecting before over the past 40 years. I'm not saying that the free trade capitalism stuff isn't important. It's tremendously important. Uh, but if you don't have a strong central government, 
then all those free markets are just going to kill you. Um, and I think that's the story for much of the world over the past 40 years. Um, and I think we forget in the United States just how all of that wealth generation uh, that we have experienced in the United States over the past 40 years would have been impossible without the centralization of the FDR era, without the consolidation of U.S. government and federal power that has been evolving over the entire uh, 230-odd year history, 250, oh, Jesus, 250-odd year history of uh, the United States. You know, there's 1776, but then there's 1789, and I, I get confused. Math, man, math. And I think it's it's a lesson that's forgotten, and I think that if we try to think about the Tudors more in terms of the incredible government consolidation that they carried out rather than, you know, Elizabeth I and Shakespeare and Henry VIII and his six wives. Not that those things aren't important. Um, I think we can get a fuller picture of not just English history and the history of the British Empire, but the history of the world in general. And, and, and there are lessons here to be found that are important uh, for today as well. So it all kicks off for our story with Henry VII, who would have been considered, um, yeah, King of England, a monarch of England and Wales at the time. Yes, England and Wales. And uh, sadly, I haven't gone into the details uh, as much as I should, as ever, Ireland getting short shrift. Um, the, uh, but the Tudors are tremendously significant for... Uh, growing conflict with Ireland. Uh, I think every Tudor monarch was concerned to um, exert power in Ireland um, and more and less successfully. It was truly the, the Stuarts, or rather the tail end of the Stuarts under uh, William of Orange, that the, the true crushing of... I mean, Cromwell was also pretty terrible uh, in between the Stuarts, but uh, Cromwell in the 1640s or uh, 50s and uh, William of Orange in the 1690s, the true crushing uh, of Ireland. Uh, so the Tudors are, are, were certainly trying to exert power over Ireland, but it, in, in, in practice, their uh, step away from the Catholic Church actually made it harder uh, for England to exert power in Ireland. Um, but unfortunately, I haven't gone into as great details in that relationship. I know there's a lot more to it, but uh, sadly, that's I, I apologize, Ray. That's all I have to say about the Tudors in Ireland. Uh, well, that's also where we get the term beyond the heel, because uh, basically for a lot of history, uh, it was only uh, sort of Dublin, County Dublin, that they owned. So to be, go beyond that was to be with the uncivilized, unwashed Irish. Oh, fascinating! So it, it was just it was Dublin during the Tudor. Dublin era. was Dublin was the Peel, so oh. you wouldn't really want to go beyond that. I did not know that. Thank you, Rory. <laughs> I'd sort of assume because I, I would assume that was about like the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe and like Russia and and, and Jewish stuff. But now that makes more sense that it would be Ireland. It's an English language thing. And anyway. I think Henry the Eighth wasn't the worst. Sadly, um, I think a lot he got a lot of lip service, or Ireland didn't really pay too much attention. But yeah, then his after him things get uh, disastrous. Yeah, uh, well, no, they, Henry VIII was too busy uh, murdering his wives to to murder Irish people, I suppose. and uh, just Catholics in general. So the Tudors went through this incredible period of chaos. I talked about Henry VIII sort of going through a, truly a revolutionary consolidation of power over religion um, in uh, his reign. But wow, did he not settle it? He did not settle anything. <laughs> he just created uh, tremendous chaos. He has successfully established the supremacy of the 
English monarch over the Church of England, and that has been the case ever since. Um, and he, but he did not want to go whole Protestant. He did not want to adopt, you know, really even dive into those theological questions at all. The folks who ended up raising his son, Edward VI, who only reigned briefly. So uh, Henry VIII, uh, do the whole thing. Henry VII, the uh, barely legitimate uh, guy who took the throne by by force, uh, reigned from fourteen eighty five. Which is still to two... a valid way of taking it. <laughs> true enough. True enough. Between fourteen eighty five and fifteen o nine, Henry VIII reigned from fifteen o nine to fifteen forty seven. His very briefly reigning son. Uh, who died at the age of 16. A sickly boy, he's described as. Indeed, uh, reigned between 1547 and 1553. So in his six years in power, I believe he was raised by uh, more Protestant-leaning folks, reigned under the regency of some Protestant-leaning folks. And also being so young, he was a lot easier to influence. Exactly, more pliable. Ended up uh, bringing uh, the mo- really the most Protestant era that uh, England has ever explored. Well, actually, sorry, I said that in the last one, last episode. <laughs> I'm entirely wrong because that was admitting Oliver Cromwell and the period of the English Civil War. So that was wrong. Correct what I said last week. Um, but under a king, certainly the most uh, uh, the most Protestant uh, England has ever been under a king. And that only lasted for six years. And then we have the reign of Bloody Mary, uh, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, the Mary the, the first. Yes, the discarded. Um, I just think it's funny her name when you consider which monarch isn't bloody. Huh. Bloody Mary. Wait, what? You know how many haven't killed loads of people? Oh, well, the thing is, though, like she gets a little bit of a bad rap, not entirely a bad rap. Uh, Henry VIII killed loads of people um, for religious reasons. Uh, Elizabeth I killed loads of people for religious reasons. Uh, the I'm not sure about Edward VI, but I assume he did as well. Um, Bloody Mary, the reason she is remembered as Bloody Mary is because, uh, and I'm pretty sure that's where the drink comes from, um, is because she attempted to reinstate Catholicism. And by that point, and the monasteries is a really key part of this, uh, so many people had gotten so rich off of the dissolution of the monastery that e- that even um, 16 years later, when she came to power, nobody was going to give up uh, the, the lands that they had taken from the church. And she didn't even really try, is my understanding, um, but there was enough Protestant propaganda or, or revelation that had been exposed to the people that she had a really difficult time. And who knows, if she had lived another 10 years, Maybe she would have succeeded in, uh, but she was also quite sickly and died in 1558. And then she was succeeded by Elizabeth I. Her half-sister. Incredibly significant uh, leader, uh, certainly not the first uh, female monarch of England, but the most successful. Uh, England, Wales, and Ireland. Actually, excess Victoria, probably. well, no, Elizabeth was much more successful because by the time Victoria was in charge, she was more of a figurehead and had fewer actual decisions to be made. Uh, Elizabeth I is extraordinary. The, her ability to maintain power, hold on to power, and reign for, uh, is that almost, uh, yeah, almost 50 years, 40, uh, 44 years, 128 days. Extraordinary. In part, she benefited from the same dynamic that uh, her grandfather, Henry VII, had, 
uh, which is that people were so sick of contention and, and disaster that they were very excited. Uh, so after that, that sort of Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, the whipsaw to the full Protestant son, the whipsaw back to the Catholic person who's burning anyone who disagrees, um, and then back to Elizabeth. I think a lot of people were just content to stay there. Uh, and she made the best of it. She is the most fondly remembered uh, English monarch, I believe, um, in part because of the literary renaissance that she helped to inspire, uh, the, with William Shakespeare being the most... Most famous. But it's always good just to forget disasters like the English Armada. <laughs> Anything there bad was... happened, just just forget that and just talk about the Spanish Armada. What's the English Armada? Was that an attempt they to invade tried Ireland? To, they, no, no, they tried to invade Spain because they were so terrified and finish off the Spanish boats, but it went equally as disastrous for the English. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. 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 That's, that's <laughs> interesting. But it's weird when you grow up here in the United Kingdom, fairly mentioned. No, but that a hell of a lot about the Spanish Armada doesn't come up as much. Uh, that's that that is that is interesting. Uh, though it, it's it's not that hard to understand because in the 1500s, the Spanish, the Habsburgs, uh, I think by the Spanish Armada, they were ruled by two separate Habsburgs, but certainly operating together, uh, ruled the world. And at that point, well, certainly ruled Europe uh, with uh, some well, French just and Italian one exceptions. Just a handful of the ships uh, crashed off the north of Ireland, mm -hmm. and the man that basically helped them was able to just create a huge castle and a, a huge amount of wealth just from those small amount of ships. Huh, so interesting. So that's where Dunluce Castle comes from, as far as I'm aware, or where it got you know so much better. So that was just like a handful of boats of so many that they had. The Spanish were a colossus, and the fact that the the English had even survived uh, was seen as a uh, a great success and uh, Gloriana. You know, she was one of the names that uh, Elizabeth I was known by. Uh, Elizabeth I was also really important because she sort of completed the work, stabilized the work that Henry VIII had started. Uh, Henry VIII had brought incredible chaos to everything. Uh, Elizabeth I put things back into order. And very importantly, this was a new order uh, subjugated to executive power uh, or the power of the government. The world of, that she had been born into, really, incredible political, social power uh, of the church across England was largely over. Uh, that overstates it, but it was the church remained incredibly powerful. Uh, even into the into the 19th, even in the 20th century, the the, the influence of religious uh, approaches in the United Kingdom is still really, really, really apparent. But it crucially was subjugated to the crown, and I think this is this is this is the key thing here that I think is neglected in the way that we talk about the development of British power in the Reagan Thatcher era, is that we really want to emphasize capitalism. We really want to emphasize. Uh, parliament taking power from the king and using that power and that money to go out and take over the world through our heroic uh, merchant adventurers. I mean, obviously, we don't, we don't look at it quite that way anymore. But uh, that, that's sort of the, the, the more conservative approach to what happened here. And I think that that, that narrative, uh, though I wouldn't put it in quite as positive terms, um, is largely true, but it leaves out the incredible accomplishment of the Tudors in creating a new kind of consolidated power. 
Um, it's a little confusing because we, um, for me, as like a student of English history, it's a little confusing to me just how wealthy uh, the early stewards and powerful seem to be. I mean, some of the re- some of the grandest palaces in Europe um, built by those guys. Even though, in the, I know from the history books that Charles the First was constantly battling Parliament for money, and uh, just sort of, I have this like vision and of, the like, sixth of Scotland. What's that? <laughs> Uh, just Sorry? to be pedantic, he's James the first of England, Wales, and Ireland, and the uh, sixth of Scotland. Oh, interesting! And so I assume Charles the first also had a uh, a Scottish. I I think there's a time when this was applied, and then it's not. It gets confusing. <laughs> well, this is a really crucial thing. Um, that uh, just as a, as a sidebar, one of the mo- biggest stumbling blocks for uh across its history was scotland uh we've all seen braveheart or i hope we've all seen braveheart i really enjoyed that film uh and uh i love that uh that came out when i was a teenager and it's made a huge impact uh freedom anyway um and i mean who knows you know more freedom and might have something to do with braveheart uh but that well there is talk that it definitely rekindled a lot of uh scottish nationals spirits Really? Oh, that yeah, that that would make sense. That would make sense. It's a for those who uh, may be too young. It's uh, a uh, famous film from the 1990s, starring and directed by Mel Gibson, that hyper dramatizes dramatizes the life of William Wallace, a Scottish patriot and freedom fighter. In One the 1200s. strange thing is sometimes incredible things do happen that aren't in the film. I think William Wallace gets an arrow in the throat in real life, and they're like, "That's too unbelievable." Wow. So, yes, there's some strange things. There is a lot of creative license. Yeah, uh, as as is always the case with Hollywood. Uh, but uh, as it should be, it's a work of art that's being created, not a work of uh, history. But throughout and up until uh, the Tudor reign, uh, war with Scotland was always a real possibility. Not a real possibility. Scotland a had real... a long alliance with France at the time. Yep. The go- I think they call it the old, the old alliance, uh, A-U-L-D or whatever you like going back uh, millennia. And now, now it's not what happened under the Tudors and the Stuarts did not stamp that out entirely. My understanding is that the the Stuart kings uh, who tried to come back and uh, against the Georges would always still use Scotland with French uh, subsidies to try to uh, try to take power even as late as the 1700s, or the mid-1700s. Then what makes that even worse is they would have been Catholic at the time, so teaming up with the Catholic French as well. There are two things that kind of deal with the Scottish question that can be credited to the Tudors. The Elizabeth I died childless, and I think through, it seems like through some canny diplomatic work on the part of James I, and all, but also Elizabeth's advisors, and Elizabeth herself, her own wisdom, um, she named the Scottish king uh, as the new king of England. And the... I believe Scotland and uh, England, the details of this are always damning, but I believe they've been ruled in personal union since. And from 1701, perhaps, uh, well, more... Act of Union would have been 1707? 1707, sorry. Uh, the Act of Union uh, in, in practice. So for 100 years before the Act of Union, the Act of Union was necessary because I think at that point the last Stuart who the last uh, ancient king of Scotland was was in the process of as a Queen Anne was about to die, or something along those lines. Um, but it was the Tudors who made the choice to unify uh, Scotland and England, strangely by inviting a Scottish king to be the king of England. Do you know what the um, 
the one of the last things that brought that about was what uh, Scotland's failed attempt to make the Panama Canal. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, I remember it that. bankrupted yeah. the country. So, it's you know, a lot of people would sort of think that Scotland's dominated by England, but it was an agreement they came to. So they sort of, this is where the term Britishness comes from. So <laughs> they uh, they worked together as an alliance. <laughs> so that was before 1707, before the Act of Union, or was well, that? That's, that? That was before it, yes. They were uh, doing a bit of sailing themselves and thought, you know, it was very ahead of the uh, the curve to try and build the Panama Canal. It had been talked about. I know some Spanish explorers had was uh, there's a mountain top there you can see, and you can see both oceans. But one problem is Scotland found one part of the world that rains more than Scotland. <laughs> they kept trying to build stuff, and the the wood would never dry. Oh, jeez. That doesn't sound like fun. Was a disaster and bankrupted the country as one-fifth of their wealth. Is that why so many Scotch Scottish people ended up in in Ireland under James I? Or? Uh, that, yes. They were like, well, here's some land in some places we've conquered. And also, it was very nearby. The second reason that uh, the Tudors contributed to, which was, uh, I think wasn't working for Henry VIII, but ended up working for uh, later folks is that Scotland, you know, you had that old alliance with France. You already alluded to this. Um, Scotland, actually in the 1660s, I believe, went much wholer hog Protestant than the English did. Uh, the, the Scottish Kirk uh, went, uh, went very Protestant. I don't, I'm not so familiar with the details, John Knox and all that. Um, but that transition meant that the the main ideology of Spanish-French opposition to England uh, over the course of the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, had dramatically less hold or power um, over the Scots, which uh, dramatically aided in the centralization of that, like, central sort of first uh, first frontier of British Empire. But yeah, the, the the centralization went went well beyond that. Uh, there's uh, Elizabeth I put together a, a an act of toleration, uh, which uh, I think dramatically overstates what that was uh, to modernize. It was not a oh Catholics are cool now we're all good. It was it was I guess we'll stop burning people was sort of the what 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 the extent of the toleration. But was. I believe this is another very important step for empires, which is religious tolerance. I know what you've said is a, is a very minor version of it, mm -hmm. but it seems to be a lot of the great empires are more nonchalant towards you know other religions and embrace them, and it's able to utilize their neighbors being uh, hostile towards them. Ab ab absolutely, and I don't want to undersell. Elizabeth I had a great deal, did a great deal of persecution of Catholics. Um, I think when we get into the and that continued in different waves. Um, and that was a tremendously popular approach, uh, whereas Henry VIII had to put down a whole rising in the north of England uh, incredibly viciously in the 1530s. By uh, the end of the 1500s, this sort of popular Protestantism was, was becoming more ingrained in the English public. Uh, and, yeah, so the, the, the toleration was that, you know, Elizabeth was, was going to not... You know, as long as you shut up about it, she wasn't going to do an inquisition. Um, but it was by no means. I think in the 19th century, we start talking about Catholic emancipation in the United Kingdom. Uh, but, you know, it was only in the, in the 1800s that 
uh, Catholics were allowed to take serious roles in government. I think there was still some question that I, I don't think an English monarch is, I, I don't think it's come up, but I think, uh, I don't think the royal family is allowed to marry a Catholic uh, to this day. No, it's, yeah. it's still not allowed, even though there's a strange thing I've noticed with even prime ministers. There's two potential Catholic prime ministers, but it's like asterisks. Um, Tony Blair converted because his wife was as soon as he um, resigned. Oh, and he then, waited until until he resigned to convert to Catholicism. Wow! And then uh, Boris Johnson, no one really knew what he was. It seems, and then he said he was when it was convenient for him because his wife wanted to get married in the Catholic chapel. So I think it's strange that you've got two sort of asterisk Catholic um, prime ministers when you have a f completely no asterisk Hindu currently in charge. It's just bizarre. So yeah, it would have been probably less um, troublesome for a royal at sometimes to marry a Muslim than a Catholic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I'm not sure that'd be the case today, but we'll, who's, who's to say? Who's to say? Time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> but I mean, in, in Elizabeth's defense, there, there absolutely was an international conspiracy under the Pope that was seeking to uh, uh, kick her out of power uh, and turn England uh, Catholic again. Um, but she she took important steps by the standards of the time, by the standards of her family, that was quite vindictive and uh, uh, happy with the burnings. I think all, you know, I think her, her father and her, both her siblings were happy to, happy to persecute for religious purposes and very confusingly for different religious purposes. Um, but uh, Elizabeth was like, okay, let's all just dial it back a notch. She didn't, she was definitely not um, Catholic. Uh, she was definitely all about the supremacy of the English crown over um, the English church. Um, but she also wasn't seen as too theologically extreme and was, was a really key part in sort of settling and establishing um, those, uh, those basics, um, sort of settling the furor that her father, Henry VIII, had set up. And that, that's the foundation upon which the, uh, the British Empire was built, upon which the stronger parliament was built. Um, you can't really imagine, and I don't think people talk about this much, you can't imagine a true modern parliament emerging in the context of the political economy that existed prior to Henry VIII. Like, you're not going to have a... I mean, even some aspects of the parliament, I'm not sure if this changed in the 19th century, if this is still the case, you know, you sort of like Oxford and Cambridge, like the universities used to have their own seats in parliament, like not like the, the jurisdictions, but the, the, the universities as religious seminaries had their own seats in parliament. Like there were all kinds of incredibly complicated, um, this can get oversimplified as just sort of the transition from feudalism to modern capitalism or what have you. Um, but it was just an incredibly complicated mess of the way that power was exerted, not just in England, but in all of Europe and all of the world, that the Tudors sorted out in very serious ways. And then on top of that centralization of power, that, you know, big government is a term we use a lot in the United States for government overreach or government power, like that big government that the Tudors established, then upon that foundation, you could build the incredible mercantile empire that the British put together. Um, but, uh, uh, and I, I'm very confident using the term British there because the Scottish and the Irish were an inextricable, inextricable, massive part of every bit of, uh, imperial expansion, uh, that the British undertook. 
So um, yes, after um, Elizabeth, it, it will be Britain. <laughs> is one uh, way of thinking of it. And then it's United Kingdom after 1801, right? Or 1801. Yeah. The, is it at? No, it's after Anne. It's it's Great Britain, right? Yeah. Because that's the, because Elizabeth I didn't, uh, no, because it was, it's something weird. Like it's the kingdom of England and Scotland and Wales yeah. and Ireland or something. And then it becomes Great Britain with the Act of Union in 1707. Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think it's the, yeah, it's Great Britain in 1707. Uh, so it's uh, it's a uh, English history is a glorious mess uh, that I uh, have. Well, I think most are. It's just uh, uh, we don't have the records. I think that's a very important part about you know a lot of well a lot of Ireland's history was destroyed by Britain. Well, just from my perspective, you know, England's more important because it gave birth to the United oh, States. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. Um, and it, it became the, the first world hegemon and then uh, gave birth to the second. So, um, oh, I just mean, with there's you, you know, you would have so much more history of every country essentially, but you know, the records have been lost to time while we do have them in this case. Uh, that, that's very true. And it's fascinating. I've reading some, uh, I've been inspired to do this by reading a work of fiction. This is the, the third uh, volume of Hilary Mantel's extraordinary trilogy, the first one in the TV series are called Wolf Hall. I can't recommend it enough. But it's fascinating contrasting this with this, uh, which is an actual work of history. And I'm like, why do we keep hearing about, in this in this uh, work of fiction, why do we keep hearing about the the Lord of Calais and what the Lord of Calais cared about or whatever? Like, why, why do we keep hearing about this? And it's because a secretary to the Lord of Calais is the guy who kept the best records. Like, we have some kind of you know, journal of his, or maybe just household records of his that survive. So Hilary Mantel, who it's definitely a work of fiction, but she's, I think, trying to hew fairly closely to the historical record, is talking a lot about the 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 Lisleys or the Lyles or, or something in Calais, because that's where she has the most strong records. So we get to hear a lot more about Cromwell's interactions with those folks, because she feels like she's on good historical basis. So absolutely, like the, the, the pure... Um, accident of what historical records are preserved, what kind of records we have, is, is very, very important. Um, but I was always an Anglophile, I, I, I think, as a kid, because I, my father's a big Anglophile. So okay. as a kid, I uh, uh, you know memorized all the kings of England. I don't think I can still do it, but uh, okay. I'm, I'm pretty close. So no, no, no close. pop quiz then? <laughs> I mean, we can try. I mean, geez, we've got you know. I'll, I'll start with the with the you know the Normans. Uh, what was it? Uh, you, you are right before was you got Edward the Confessor, and then uh, Harold Godwinson, and then you go with William the Conqueror, and then you got William the Second, and then I think it's Henry the First, and then is it Stephen and Maud, and then yeah. Henry the Second, yeah, and then Henry the Third, no, Richard is it? Oh yeah, wait. It's sorry. Ah, uh, no. So, so, sorry. Henry the Second. Then it goes Richard the Lionhearted. Then it goes John Lackland. Uh, yeah. Then it goes, crap. I should know this. John Lackland to something the third. Uh, then we go to uh, Henry. Uh, no, William the Henry the third. Yeah. Henry the third. He was there for a long time, right? Yeah. And uh, then twelve he... sixteen to twelve seven D two. Is that, and then do we go to Edward the First? We then move into England and Wales to Edward the First. Edward the First, Edward the Second, who is very brief. Uh, does it go to Edward the Third right after that? It certainly does. 
And then Richard II. Yeah. And then Richard II. Uh, there's a new house, right? Richard II. It's a name that's, in, it's, that's very similar to one in Game of Thrones, if that gives you a clue. Uh, uh, is it... Wait, we already did the three Edwards. So Richard II. Oh, William. No. Nah, nah, I've lost it. House of uh, Lancaster. Who is it? Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth. Edward the Fourth. Henry the Fifth. Oh, Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fifth. Henry the Sixth. And yep. then you've got Edward the Fourth in there at some point, and then yes, it goes back to, to like the House Henry of the, York. And then it gets, and then it gets super easy, right? Then it goes uh, Richard the Third. Shakespeare wrote about him. Uh, did I miss? Yeah. Did, did I miss an Edward? The Prince uh, is in the Tower. Ed, yes, Edward the Fourth, Edward the Fifth, Richard Edward the Fourth, Edward the Fifth. One of those is the, from one of the princes in the Tower, right? Yes. And then Richard, yeah. the, Richard the Third, Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, uh, Edward the Sixth, uh, Mary Elizabeth the First, James the First, no, uh, James the First, Charles the First, uh, Oliver Cromwell the Protectorate, uh, Charles the Second, James the Second, William and Mary, and George, George, George. George, George, George. Yeah, yes. George, uh, George the first through third, and then do we go to George the fourth? Yeah, yeah. Okay, George, George one through four. That's real easy and gets you up into the the eighteen hundreds, right? Yes. Um, is there an Edward before Victoria? Uh, there's uh, not an Edward. Not an Edward. Oh, a William. There's a William. A uh, William. Yes. There's a William the fourth. Yeah. William the fourth, then Victoria, then Edward the. Seventh, Sixth. no, Edward the Sixth. No, Edward the no, Sixth. No, sorry, is... Edward the Fourth. Oh yes, yeah, Edward the Sixth or Seventh. Yes, Edward the Seventh. Uh, Edward. No. no, no. Edward and William. No. Yeah. Uh, who cares? Actually, Shorts you get in the twentieth century and they don't have any power. Yes. So yeah. Um, you did very well. Yeah, I well, yeah. I, I'm sorry if that was terribly boring. Um, we'll start from the Saxons next time. Yeah, I, I keep meaning. There's this great podcast, The History of Britain, uh, that I've gone through, and you know, it does all of them. And yeah, no, it's it gets the Edgar Athelbert Athelstan Eagle 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 Turd. It, it just it gets very gets very difficult. Um, but I'm I'm okay from Edward the Confessor generally. Um, but yeah, I can't do U.S. presidents hilariously. I always get lost in the 1850s and the 1880s. The emphasis, like what I what I want to talk about uh, today, is just just that that foundation, like the the before power could be spread about to Parliament to um, economic actors that benefited the uh, the British state, the state had to be consolidated, and I think the the great fall of failing of the Reagan era. Um, and our emphasis on markets and business above everything else that 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 privileges this vision of British history where it's all about uh, the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution where some, you know, fanatically religious capitalists, you know, took over the system and whatnot, like, is that we, we neglect that centralization and how important it is to establish strong central power before you can you can build up all the all the delightful, chaotic um, capitalism, red truth, red and tooth and claw. Because if a country doesn't have that degree of centralization, then it's not going to flourish under a hyper-capitalist 
environment. That's why China has been the only real success story of the Reagan era, or at least the most dynamic success story of the Reagan era, is because they're great at capitalism, red and tooth and claw, because they've got enough established central power that no matter how laissez-faire they get, how free market they get, they're not going to uh, chip away at the basic uh, the basic stability and basic interests of the state and the people. And I, I think that's sort of where we're getting to in the United States is I think we're realizing that we've gone a little bit too far in the hyper-capitalist direction. And don't get me wrong, the hyper-capitalist direction is essential. Like you can't just have this sort of stultified, centralized, bureaucratized state forever, but you need to have some degree of centralized, bureaucratized state to play off against. And then you get to a point where you start to undermine that state and you need the pendulum to swing back. And I think we're at the point where the United States, where it's time for the pendulum to swing back. Um, that time was, it's a 40 year era. That time was 35 years ago for most states uh, in the world. Uh, you, you really do, um, I'm not saying that uh, in the FDR era, you know, the post-World War II era, uh, every state in the world was doing very well because they had to deal with the Cold War and they were coming from a period of incre uh, incredible poverty, you know, directly post-imperial. Um, but if you look at the progress that was made by most states in the world um, in the post-World War II era, uh, the FDR era, uh, in a, put it in an Americanized sense, and compare that to the Reagan-Thatcher era of the 80s on, I, it seems obvious to me that most states made a lot more progress when the people who ran... Um, international organizations believed in more than markets, um, which is was the case in World War II. What can you point to as the most obvious thing America's currently doing wrong that's making it too decentralized? Uh, well, cryptocurrency is a good example. Uh, okay. It's often often pitched as a uh, a revolution against the government when really uh, yet it's you know BlackRock and and the biggest. Firms on Wall Street are, uh, but that, that, I think that's sort of a side. Although it is thing. incredibly traceable, so in some regards, it could be a, a great tool for the state. Exactly. Well, yeah, in some ways, in some ways, the um, I'd say private equity. Uh, I used to never get. You know, I've been hearing people complain about private equity for forty, fifty. You know, for sorry, for a, you know, over a decade now, and I've always like, oh, whatever, it's capitalism, it's how it works. But like, just like looking into the details and like the really simple question being posed like it's can you name a single corporate merger that has brought benefits to anybody other than the shareholders and in many cases not even them like brought any benefit to the consumer any benefit to the workers at these businesses it's just this sort of uh, obsession with hyper efficiency and monopolistic size and business um under the just sort of assumption that like oh no no that's competition that's that's capitalism by allowing these incredibly um, massive, I mean, it, it's funny, you, like to compare Amazon to the Catholic Church uh, before Henry the Seventh is, I, I think, is actually kind of before Henry the Eighth, rather, is I think actually a, a kind of um, valid exercise. Frankly, I, I do say at the end of this this video that it better be out by the time this this comes out um, is that like it, it's kind of strikingly reminiscent of. Uh, the fall of China, to, to add another uh, wrinkle to this, is that you know you had centralization that went very well, and then you had centuries 
where um, that centralized power was used exclusively to make the wealthy wealthier. And we haven't had centuries of that in the United States, but I think we've had 40 years of that. And we're seeing, you know, whether it's birth rates or mortality rates um, or the fact that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were both considered like plausible presidents of the United States in an election um, seven years ago. Like, like there's so much that indicates that it's time to do a bit of centralization. And then, you know, if, if we do it effectively in 20 years, I'll, I'll believe, be, believe exactly what I believed 20 years ago. And we got to get the government out of this, that, and the other thing. And we need some deregulation and this side of the thing. But it is, it is definitely time for some re-regulation. It is definitely time uh, for, frankly, creating... See, I talked about the way that the Tudors set up a foundation of centralization that then the post-Stuart folks uh, could, you know build this incredible capitalist empire on top of. At a certain point, the foundation begins to crumble. And if that foundation crumbles, which you can argue to some extent is what happened with the British Empire um, post, um, uh, post-1917, if that foundation crumbles, then if you go too far with your laissez-faire, if you go too far with your hypercapitalism, if you go too far with this, this, this ideology that government sucks, that allows um, hyper-powerful institutions like the Amazon Catholic Church or what have you to build up as rivals that, that looks out for its own interests instead of for the, you know, at least the centralized state has, has the goal of looking out for the interests of all the people, uh, then things start to fall apart. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think we're in a falling apart uh, regime, which I think makes it, makes it important to look back at history look back at British history and realize that there was centralization before uh, the Glorious Revolution, before the 1600s. Uh, uh, Henry VIII introduced what would have been radical at the time, a sort of pension for people that were too old to work, which um, quite often you would have just died. There wasn't really much care for you. Is that Henry VIII or was that uh, Elizabeth I? I th- okay, I feel maybe like- it was Elizabeth. Yeah, I think that's the the poor law, which was one of the key things. And that was just an example of, so in the, the book on the Pilgrimage of Grace, the, the sort of 1530s Vendée that I was talking about last episode, they talk about how the Catholic Church was much more important in the North than it was in the South because uh, the, the Catholic Church was doling out charity and the North was much poorer. So people were completely reliant on these monasteries to keep eating. Um, so I think that's part of the consolidation that and, and fixing up and picking up the pieces that Elizabeth I did was this recognition that having dispossessed uh, the Catholic Church and taken away all its money that was certainly used for corruption but was also used to feed people, the, the English state had to take that on as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's like that sort of work is an Im- invaluable precursor to hypergrowth capitalist approach things. Um, you, you need both. Um, and I think that's why I think it's so important to, uh, get to know the tutors a little better. And it it is a, it is a fascinating contradiction that the, uh, really like blunt dictatorship of Henry VIII was necessary to clear out, um, the, 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 the encumbrances to the later capitalist, you know, laissez-faire free market flourishing uh, that the English experienced. I do not think we need a dictatorship or a strongman now, but like that's what we risk falling into if we allow 
these power centers outside of government to continue to accumulate as much power as they have. It's been surprising to me to sort of see the Tudors in this this new light, um, but it's, uh, I guess, one of the great virtues of changing one's mind, you know? It, it, uh, I, I had a very strong Reaganite hyper-capitalist view of things until 2016, and since then, um, I've been, you know, uh, changing the way that I look at a lot of things. And that, you know, even, you know, I think I read the first two Hillary Mantel books um, on Thomas Cromwell uh, in the court of Henry VIII uh, a decade ago. And reading them, reading this last one, um, uh, most of a decade later, it, it's, it, it, it's fascinating. It just sort of sends me in very new directions. Um, Did we see when the big companies were split up, you know, the likes of General Electric, did we see much of a boom for the uh, the American populace when that was implemented? Because it feels like the, the Amazon analogy calls back to that. The really obvious one is that uh, IBM probably wouldn't have been cap- uh, as powerful as it was without the breakup of AT&T and without the... They were not forced to break up, but they had a, like a consent decree that required them to open up operating systems to Microsoft... Even in the 1990s, uh, there was this sort of last gasp of antitrust, and Microsoft was required to open up uh, competition to... Uh, well, little... yeah, they're terrified of being, you know, labeled an official monopoly. Exactly. So that's a... The, the, the tech industry that drives the wealth of every baby boomer in the country that is, you know, the unfortunately, uh, probably... Uh, riskily, uh, is the centerpiece of every retirement account in the United States, would not exist without government intervention to keep first AT&T, then IBM, and then Microsoft from controlling absolutely everything. Um, Amazon, Google, um, Facebook would not exist without government action. Um, And Microsoft wouldn't have existed, as the titan it is, without government action against IBM. Um, And I think that over the past, since the 1990s, um, and in really that action against Microsoft in the 1990s was sort of a, a last gasp, there's been almost no intervention against uh, large economic power in the United States. And I think that is changing in important ways under the Biden administration, but I would argue it is not changing enough. They're being too uh, coy with it? Well, it's the certain figures have been uh, like Lena Khan, uh, some other folks at the DOJ and other uh, institutions that I whose names I should know better um, have been quite aggressive. Uh, but there are other aspects of the Biden administration that are not being aggressive at all. Um, so there's some real green shoots and some impressive stuff. And there are a lot of folks who are working really hard to destroy those green shoots. Uh, a, a, this is a bit late now, but um, the uh, one a big news of a number of weeks back was a rating agency had downgraded the United States. Wow. Um, and uh, it's quite surprising to a lot of people. Uh, if you look at these things in comparative uh, status, we the United States is in much better financial health. It's not just that you know we are the he- world hegemon, but we're also in better economic and financial health than really anybody else in the world. And uh, so this downgrade is a bit of a surprise. There are a lot of ways you can read that downgrade. I have, uh, I remember 2008, so I have absolutely no faith in uh, these credit rating agencies that were giving, you know, AAA plus ratings to bad mortgages and killed the U.S. and European banking systems, world banking systems. 
Um, so I, I obviously uh, I'm predisposed to not like rating agencies, but uh, a conspiratorial interpretation of what the rating agency is doing there is like, okay, it seems like inflation's been licked. It seems like um, uh, uh, things, the economy looks kind of powerful, kind of strong. Um, and I think that rating agency downgrade is basically, uh, hey, 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 to the Biden administration, like, now don't you, don't you start thinking you can do more of the good things that have led to these good results. It's time for austerity. I think that's sort of, I think that's, kind, I, 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 like, that's, that, that's my own uh, interpretation that could be entirely uh, incorrect. But so there are absolutely a lot of forces in um, our economy that are working against the idea that these large sources of power should be broken up. And that's one of the scariest things is that throughout U.S. history um, and history in a lot of other countries, there's this oscillation. The pendulum swings back and forth. You know, it, it just sort of uh, uh, in the 1970s, government uh, covered itself in shame. You know, you had Vietnam, you had Watergate. Um, and then, of course, the oil crisis, which wasn't entirely a creation of the U.S. government, but was, you know, so everything, you know, and, and then, of course, things swung towards business. When crises happen, economic crises happen, traditionally, the pendulum swings the other way. That's the reason we were able to, there was, there was no FDR, there's no New Deal era, there's no social safety net in the United States, there's no good neighbor policy towards the Americas, there's no probably winning, I mean, debatably, there's no winning World War II without the Great Depression and how it discredited business um, and allowed the government to exert itself in the ways to do all those things. 2008 should have been that discrediting moment. And we had Barack Obama. We had the leader we needed. But because, I would argue, in part because of the internet, in part, I, a lot of things. But I've heard Joe Biden also, when he was saying that he just wouldn't, uh, Obama wouldn't listen to him and wouldn't go far enough when he could have, he was kind of scared because he was so um, so new for America to have a black president. I don't know, I think I think that's valid. I, I don't know. I think Joe Biden's uh, self-serving stories. I, I trust Joe Biden to move things in a better direction because he does what's popular and sees like what the whole you know world. I, I think Obama comes in for a lot of criticism very fairly, but also like the country wasn't ready for it. But why wasn't the country ready for it? Why was the government not? Why was the American people not able to look at 2008 and be like, wow, Wall Street really effed us. It's time for us to give government a little more power and F them back. And that's because I don't know if it's television. I don't know if it's the Internet. Um, and if you look, especially if you look at AI and just like the fact that all of this stuff is about to be automated in a fire hose fashion, I just think that the, the business propaganda is stronger than it used to be. I mean, some of that's actually the death of churches. That's the death of communities across the country. That's the, the I, I think it's, you could make an argument, I'm not sure it's true, but you can make an argument that this wave of hypercapitalism has been more destructive um, and been able to consolidate more power more quickly in a few places than even like the robber baron era before it. You know, in the 1890s, it seemed like every city in the country had like its rich and poor people. In, in because of that's how technology worked then. The way that technology worked in the 1980s and 1990s is all the rich people in the country live in 10 cities um, uh, and really two or three. Um, and it, it, it's uh, depending on the season. And that is, uh, so yeah, it, I, I do worry that modern technology, the internet, what have you, uh, will keep us on a consolidating 
power outside of government with wealthy people that will be to the detriment of uh, the U.S. Republic. Do you see a depression-like scenario eventually happening? I mean, it's guaranteed. Like World War III, the next Great Depression is is guaranteed. Uh, there, there will be a horrific new war. There will be another massive financial crisis. How we, what what we have control over, less so with the financial crisis than the war, is the timing, um, the policy choices we make, the 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 way that we choose to educate the public. I mean, the More Freedom Foundation, its primary goal is to make people more aware of what power we have over whether and when World War III happens. Um, financial crises, I think, are a little more up in the air. That there's so many moving parts. There's so many, I, I, I don't know. Um, I went through a decade of expecting a financial crisis after 2008, uh, a bigger financial crisis, and it just kept not happening. And now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be humble. I've, I've, but that's I've, uh, because we've given so much power to the business people that know better. Oh, is that it? Is that yeah. it? Um, there's actually a lot of interesting discussion about we finally stopped ignoring those, uh, those business people. Uh, interestingly, during the Trump administration, vis a vis spending and during COVID, and that is actually what finally cured the U.S. economy. Um, but, uh, but yes, I'm sure there are people, there are lobbyists making exactly that argument right now, Rory, um, and, and lots of them. Um, so yeah, I, I worry. I worry that if we don't look at history accurately, we will continue on the, frankly, the Chinese path. You know, in the 1400s, the Chinese... Uh, we're floating uh, armadas to every Portuguese dinghy, you know, that they could, they could, you know, uh, but by the 1800s, just 400 years later, um, because they had used their incredible wealth and power just for the benefit of a smaller elite and allowed all this power to centralize outside of the government, um, they were, they were beaten up by, uh, by a weird North Atlantic Island, you know, it, it is. Not somewhere uh, I think that, you know, the United States will be in four years, but uh, I think it is somewhere that the United States could be in a, if, after another decade or two of this. So it's, it's really important to look to history and sort of revise our ideas of what's important. Centralization is important. There is no hyper-capitalist success without centralized government, and that's, that's what the, the Tudors gave uh, to uh, what became the British Empire. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOLaw, and he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the US Can Do Better, and music provided by Kevin MacLeod.